Good morning. We're going to read this morning uh, from Luke in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. You can follow along. We'll have the text up on the screen, so you can also follow along in your copy of Scripture if you'd like, or you're welcome to just listen in uh, as I read. Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through verse 39. Here's what the Scripture says. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the, whole, from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It was, he was uh, kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had, been, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So... He got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the Lord's word. You may be seated. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us. We thank you for the joy it is to be in this place this morning and give you glory and honor. We are grateful, God, that you are here with us by the power of your Spirit, that we can know you better by considering and reflecting and trusting on the truth of your Word, that we can encounter you in a profound, profound way by worshiping you with our heart and our mind. And we can challenge one another to be more like Jesus as we fellowship with one another and seek you in prayer. So this morning, God, we pray that you would be at work in us by your Spirit to make us into new kinds of people, Jesus kind of people. We give this time to you as we take a few minutes to consider your word. We pray, God, it would be effective and fruitful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage this morning is a long passage. It's Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 56. I read one of the 
miraculous occasions that we're going to think about this morning. We're going to look at four of them. So I've read one of the four. Luke chapter 8, verses 23 through 26, we might be uh, well served maybe to take each one of these miraculous events in turn and have focused attention on the, the details and truths that are uh, paramount in each one of these occasions. However, by considering them as a whole, we can look at the similarities that we encounter in all four of these occasions. There are themes that thread them th thread through all four of these miraculous encounters, and by doing so, we can maybe see something we wouldn't by looking at them at one, of the at one at a time. We need to think a little bit about why miracles are in the Bible. You might think miracles are in the Bible to give it a little bit of kick, a little bit of spice, a little bit of flavor, otherwise boring narrative. Every now and then, someone raises from the dead. It kind of spices it up a little bit. That's not why the miracles are in the Bible. We might think the miracles are in the Bible because God wants people to experience relief from ailments. We might consider that God doesn't want blind people to be blind, so miracles are in the Bible so that blind people can see. Lepers can no longer have leprosy. People who can't walk can walk. This sorts of things. That is a reason miracles are in the Bible. I will suggest it's not the primary reason miracles are in the Bible. If the only reason miracles are in the Bible is to provide relief, we're left with some troubling questions, which is, then why weren't all the people in the world healed? Why just a few? A relatively small number in a relatively small area of the world experienced these healings. So there must be something more going on. So we have to understand why miracles are in the Bible. The, the primary reason Jesus did incredible, miraculous things was to tell us who he is. First, by doing miracles, he demonstrated he fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. Everybody in Old Testament Israel, anticipated the Messiah would do miraculous works, including he giving sight to the blind. So one of the reasons Jesus did the miracles was to demonstrate he's the Messiah who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. The second reason Jesus does miracles is to demonstrate he's not just a guy. Jesus is a man, but he is God in the flesh. And the miracles are, are done to communicate God is with us. So the primary reason for miracles is to show us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament, and he is God in the flesh who has come to save people from their sins. So when we look at the miracles, we say, who is Jesus? And the people are going to ask that question as we look at these four miracles in Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8. But more than that, Encountering God in the flesh, the next question is this. I'm now standing in the presence of the Messiah. I'm standing in the presence of God. Can I trust him? Can I trust him? The real challenge we see with people who are spending time with Jesus, even as he is doing incredible, miraculous things, is faith is challenged. The title of the message today is Troubled Faith. We're going to look at people who are encountering Christ and experiencing a sort of crisis of faith, and I'm going, to tell, I'm going to suggest that there are two ways in which we have a crisis of faith when we encounter God. The first thing that we wonder is this, can Jesus save me? Does he have the power to do what he says he can do? 
Can Jesus save me? It's a question of ability, strength, power, capacity, competence. We wonder, can Jesus actually save? If that is settled in your heart, perhaps you're a believer and perhaps you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, you say, oh, I trust Jesus can save. I know who he is and I believe him. I trust Jesus can save. Well, the next troubling part of trusting Jesus is this. Will he? Jesus can save, yes, I believe that, but will he actually show up? And these are the two ways people in these encounters struggle with Jesus. Number one, can he do what he says he's going to do? Secondly, if he can, will he? And maybe if you're like most of us, you've experienced these kind of troubling occasions. Troubled faith. We're going to look at each one of these miracles twice. It's only going to take us three and a half hours. By a miracle, it'll take less than that. Can Jesus save? We're going to look at each miracle twice through the lens of can Jesus save and will he? Can Jesus save? Does he have power? You might think about two parents who are having an argument or a discussion. They're under stress. Bills have come in. There is not enough money to cover the bills. And they are having a discussion about how to appropriately address the shortfall. Little Betty Sue, all of six, year old, six, year old, six years old, comes wandering into the dining room where this uh, profound and intellectual conversation is occurring. And she, with her crumpled up hand, puts her hand up on the dining room table and opens it, and $2.35 falls out on the table in a variety of crumpled up dollar bills and coins. And she goes, I, I scraped this together in my room, Will this do the trick? And so we might sort of be moved a little bit. That little Betty Sue was so concerned about the argument that mom and dad are having that she was moved to clean out the piggy bank and reach under her bed to scrape together the few coins. And we say, oh, this is beautiful. We might even shed a tear. But what's the problem? $2.35 does not fix it. Her intention is fantastic. Her heart is fantastic. And as a parent, if you've been in that situation, you're sort of trying to figure out what to do with this. Thank you for this does nothing. And sometimes we wonder if this is what Jesus is like. Really a good heart, really cares a lot, best of intentions, but at the end of the day, when it comes to the real stuff of life, you know, doesn't have a lot to offer. $2.35 is not going to fix the problem. When the perils of life, the real stuff that we face day in and day out, when they are significant, which is often, is Jesus able to do anything? Does he actually have power to accomplish his purpose in our lives? Look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. One day he got in the boat with his disciples and he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. They're on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, whatever you want to call it. They went out, and Jesus promptly fell asleep. Why did Jesus fall asleep? Teach him a lesson? Because he didn't want to row? Think he, we're pretty sure this was a sailboat, but, you know. Why did he fall asleep? Here's the profound theological thought for you this morning. Because he was tired. He was sleepy. Have you heard much about the disciples? These guys are draining. He spends all his time with them. He needs a break. You fake slept before to get a break from people. 
Jesus wasn't faking. He was out. A windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water. It's not unusual for unpredictable storms to come into the Sea of Galilee. It's down in sort of a bowl with hills all around it. It's not unusual, depending on the temperature and the humidity, for winds to suddenly come rushing down the slopes of the mountains, especially the mountains to the east of the Sea of Galilee, very unpredictable. You can't predict it necessarily. And, and all of a sudden, these windstorms will kick up, and suddenly, it's extraordinarily wavy on the sea. This particular storm doesn't appear to include rain. It's just a windstorm, and it's kicking up the sea, and it's whitecaps. In fact, the sea is so rough, the boat is filling with water. Look at the end of verse 23 in Luke 8. It was filling with water, and they were in danger. So the Bible tells us the disciples were in danger. Why? Because the disciples were in danger. The boat was going to sink, and they were going to drown. So this isn't pretend sinking. It's not pretend water. It's they are going to go down. The question is, God's in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. Does he have the power to do anything? Can he do something about a storm? They were in significant danger. They went and they woke Jesus up. And they said, Master, Master, we're perishing. They woke Jesus up and said, By the way, we're all about to drown. We're going to die. And this is what Jesus did. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. This would have been bizarre. Because the way the word is here, the tense of the verb there, they ceased is not where suddenly the wind died down and the waves died down. Maybe you've had that happen, it's stormy, and then the weather just sort of blows its way out and it sort of calms down. It's like, over. It went from choppy to calm. It went from windy to not windy. It was a, whoa, what just happened? Just boom, it's over. This is their reaction. Look at the end of the passage. Verse 25. Who is this? Why are miracles in the Bible? Tell us who Jesus is. How do they respond to the miracle? Who is this? So they're getting it. They're understanding why the miracle is there. The miracle is supposed to tell them something about Jesus. The miracle did not happen to keep them from drowning. They needed to discover something about Jesus. We're still maybe a chapter away from Peter finally confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still trying to figure out who this guy is. Who is this that when he commands the wind, it does whatever he wants it to do. When he commands the waves, the waves do whatever he wants it to do. Who is this? Look what Jesus says to them in verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Don't you trust me? What did they believe about Jesus? For him to be any help to them, he had to be awake. Where did they discover? Where did they figure this out? That Jesus, asleep, can't handle it. What are all the things Jesus is doing while sleeping in this boat? The Bible tells us that the entire known universe and unknown universe is held together by his power. While Jesus is napping, he keeps our solar system together and keeps the oxygen from planet Earth from flying off into space. Thank you, Jesus, that you're able to keep everything together while napping. When I nap, the world falls apart. Jesus naps while keeping it together. Somewhere along the line, 
the disciples decided Jesus doesn't have the ability to nap and watch out for us. That Jesus at some point can sort of punch out and not be available. And if we don't, don't rouse him from his sleep, we are going to die. What are the options before Jesus in this occasion? Here's a number of options Jesus could do. Number one, he could make it so the boat never sinks. It could just rage out there and never fill with water. All the water would just keep coming out of it. He could make it so the water sinks, the boat sinks, and they don't die underwater. Couldn't he do that? They could go underwater and discover they don't drown. Jesus could make it so they go underwater and drown and die, and then bring them to life on the shore. These are all things. See, we decide here's how Jesus works, and it's this little teeny sliver. And then God goes, I'm sorry, I've got about a billion things I could do that you haven't even thought of. And you're worried that I'm taking a nap. So the disciples' faith was troubled because they thought they got themselves into a spot where God didn't have the power to help. Who is this that commands even the winds and the water? This is God in your boat with you. They make it over to the shore and we encounter the the demoniac of the Gerasenes. We read the passage. We won't read it again. These demons are powerful and evil. Demons are powerful. They're more powerful than you. They're angels who have rebelled against God. When the centurion saw an angel at Jesus' tomb, the Bible says the centurion, just so you know, centurions are brave. They were so afraid they become paralyzed like dead men. This is how powerful angels are. They make centurions wet their armor. (laughs) Demons are angels who have rebelled against God. This guy has a demon or a thousand. Jesus meets this guy. For a long time, he's lived naked among the tombs. Chains couldn't hold him. The demons were giving him supernatural power. Jesus commanded these demons to leave the man, and they begin to negotiate with Jesus about the terms of their leaving the man. Pay attention. They never argue whether or not they are going to leave. Why? He is God. They never once argue about whether or not they were going to leave the man. God told them to leave, so what are they going to do? They're going to leave. The question is, where are they going to go? He never gave them a command on that, and so that's where they argue with him, where they negotiate with him. When Jesus tells a demon to leave, what does a demon do? He leaves. There's no argument here on that fact. The question is, where are they going to go? Jesus asks the name. Why would Jesus need the name of this demon? He wants his disciples to understand how powerful he is as God. The demon answers, we are legion. We don't really know how many demons, but legion in the uh, Roman military is a thousand men. I don't know how many demons there are. One's enough. Half a dozen's enough. All we know, it's a whole bunch of demons. Jesus wants his disciples and all those watching around to know Jesus is more powerful than however many demons you can fit into a guy. They argue they don't want to go into the abyss, which is a place we understand, especially from the book of Revelation, is a place of confinement for spiritual beings like Satan and and demons. They say, we don't want to go into the abyss. Would you mind if we go into the herd of pigs that's over here? We know from the gospel of Mark, this herd of pigs was 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. I don't know how many pigs you could fit in a room this size. 2,000 seems like a lot. And Jesus said, yeah, 
Go ahead. So this legion of demons leaves the man, goes into the herd of pigs. How powerful are these demons? They drive 2,000 pigs off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee, and they drown. Interesting, isn't it? What were the disciples afraid they were going to do? Drown. And now they just watched demons drown a bunch of perfectly good bacon. It's a tragedy. It really is. That's terrible. That's ridiculous. Why would, the, why would this happen? What, what, what we want to understand is how powerful these demons were. That's the point of why we're discovering all this, this uh, information about this legion who goes into a bunch of pigs because Jesus stands there completely unimpressed with this legion, completely unimpressed. In fact, I might even suggest his dialogue with this demon seems bored. Okay, go ahead, leave. Can we go into the pigs? What? Oh, are you still here? Yeah, go into the pigs. A thousand demons to us, we wouldn't know what to do with that. That would scare the heebie-jeebies out of us, and rightfully so. For Jesus, totally unimpressed. I told you to leave. Get out of here. Go into the pigs. And everybody watching sees how powerful this legion of demons are, and they look at Jesus standing there going, how powerful is this guy? How powerful is he? When the townspeople came out and gathered the information about what happened, what was their response? They were afraid. They could in some way sort of contain the demoniac. They could try and chain him. He would eventually break him. But at least he stayed among the tombs. Who hangs out among tombs? Nobody. Just He stays out there. But now we've got somebody in our midst who is more powerful than this demoniac, and they're afraid, and rightfully so. The appropriate response to the presence of God is the fear of God. Read through your Bible. Every time somebody encounters God, they sort of freak out. And that's what these people did. But unfortunately, instead of making sure they had close relationship with God, what did they do? Please leave. And Jesus was more than happy to oblige. The demoniac, the man who had been healed, he wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said, no, you go and tell what God has done for you. Can Jesus save? Everybody is astonished at the power of God, at the power of Christ to cast out these demons. This is the one story among all these miracles where no faith is expressed. There's nowhere in here where somebody is said to believe. The demoniac doesn't express faith in God. We know he believed. Did he invite Jesus to come to him? No, he was out of his mind. I love this. Jesus sought him out. Why did Jesus cross the lake? Because he was tired of that side of the Sea of Galilee? No. He knew he needed to go cast the demons out of a guy who's never going to call him. Jesus took the initiative, cast out the demons, and the guy responded in faith and worship, and Jesus told him, go and proclaim the good news, which is exactly what he did. Can Jesus save? 2,000 dead pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee says he is that powerful. Let's look down at verse 40 through the end of the passage, verse 46. Two miracles in one account. Can Jesus save? Jesus crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there was a crowd waiting for him, and a synagogue leader, a really important Jewish man who was in charge of the religious practices of the local community, Jairus, 
He came to Jesus. He fell at his feet, begging Jesus to come to his home and heal his daughter. We don't know what illness his daughter had. All the Bible says is she was dying. She's 12 years old. Jesus doesn't respond verbally, but he begins going with him. So the indication is he's going to go with this guy to his home. But there's a crowd crowding around him. And while he's making his way, a woman who was ill was sneaking up to try and get near to Jesus. Now, her illness was an embarrassing illness, a personal illness, an issue of blood that never ended. It was constant. This was troubling for a number of reasons. Number one, it was a terrible illness to live with. It was a terrible illness to live with. Secondly, the the physical suffering she endured was hard to describe. On top of that, her pursuit of medical care had compounded her physical suffering. The ways in which doctors had sought to treat her had made the condition worse. On top of that, she was bankrupt bankrupt from paying these doctors. It gets worse. This particular illness is one specifically mentioned in the Old Testament that says as long as you have an issue of blood, you are forbidden from participating in the public worship of God at the temple, or in this case, even in the synagogue. She would have been an outcast. She would have been socially and religiously isolated. She would have had needed to, if she was following the rules, to let people know that she was unclean and they would need to keep their distance. Nobody, of course, would visit in her home. If they did, she would need to be sure to have furniture she didn't use because any furniture she used, the law would consider unclean if others used it. How embarrassing would that be? Somebody comes over for tea and say, don't sit in that chair. I've sat in it. The better solution would be, don't have people over. So this is this woman's condition. Now, she believed that Jesus could heal her because she's going to make her way up to Jesus, and she was thinking in her mind, if I just were to touch his clothes, I would be healed. So she has a pretty good strategy. If I can touch him, I'll be physically healed, and I can kind of sneak in, touch his garment, and then sneak away. All's good. Now, what does this tell us about her faith? She believed that Jesus could heal her physically, couldn't she? Couldn't he? What did she not believe? She didn't think Jesus could fix all the other issues. Jesus probably can fix the physical issue, but the social and religious isolation, that's that's really not in his wheelhouse. So if I can just get the physical issue dealt with, I'll, I'll try and handle the rest on my own, or maybe I can handle the rest if at least the physical part of it were gone. She uh, thought Jesus could, I might say it this way, Jesus could mostly save. He could deal with some of this stuff, but at the end of the day, he couldn't deal with all this stuff. So she sneaks up, touches his garment, and Jesus said, someone touch me. Someone touch me. And Peter, this guy's brilliant, he always knows what to say and when to say it, which is, whatever you're thinking, say that. It's like, Jesus, Jesus, everybody's touching you, bro. This is what's funny. A thousand demons were smart enough not to argue with Jesus. <laughs> Here's Peter. You know what? We ought to argue. Let's have a conversation, Jesus. And so Peter's like, dude, everybody's touching you. What are you? T- you're being so ridiculous. 
That's what he's saying. So, are you serious? You want me to ask all these people, who touched Jesus? Raise your hand. Look, Jesus, everybody's raising their hand. No, 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 somebody touched me, somebody touched me. And finally, this woman realized she, was getting, she wasn't getting off the hook. The woman saw she couldn't be healing. She came up trembling, embarrassed, uncomfortable, awkward. Everybody would have known who she is once they saw her. She touched Jesus. What did they know immediately about this woman? She's unclean. So what does this mean Jesus is? He's unclean. Where is he going? He's going to a synagogue ruler's house to keep a little girl from dying. What can he not do now? Can't go in that guy's house. Not till he goes and washes his clothes. He won't be clean till evening. This woman comes trembling up, realizing she may have ruined everything for this synagogue leader. Do you think her and the synagogue leader have ever had a conversation? I don't know. I like to imagine a little bit. Do you think she ever snuck up to the door of the synagogue just to hear maybe the reading of the law? Just so maybe she could hear it being read because she's so isolated, but she knows she can't go in. Do you think he would have sent somebody out and say, hey, get out of here. You're unclean. We all know it. And now she has touched Jesus, and he's unclean, and he won't be able to go to this guy's house. Her life just got really, really hard, didn't it? Look what Jesus says to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Here's the important part. Go in peace. That's an expression of relational wholeness. You and I have no problem. Guess what? You can't make Jesus unclean. You, you touch somebody else, maybe, ceremonially in the Old Testament, you make them unclean. Whatever Jesus touches, what? Becomes clean. It's the other way with him. Jesus is saying, her, no, I can, I can save you, yes. I can heal your body, yes. I can make you clean, yes. And Jesus now, as the ranking religious member of this community, is saying, Go in shalom. Go in peace. It's all good with you and I. We're good. There, there is no social or religious isolation between you and I. We are perfectly good. You don't need to hide from me. Verse 49. He's having this conversation while he was still speaking with this woman. My guess is he said more to her than this one sentence if he was still speaking to her. Someone came up to the ruler and said, your daughter's dead. Let's read between the line. This lady delayed the teacher long enough. She's dead now. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. What do we discover about their view of Jesus' healing? He can fix sick people. We actually just saw him do it. The problem is with Jesus, you got to get him in the house before the person buys the farm. Because if they check out before he gets there, you're out of luck. That's what they believed. Because now that the little girl is dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. He's useless to us. Jesus, on hearing this, was more polite than I would be. Fine. See ya. I'm going to go hang out with the demoniac. He was at least nice. Jesus is nicer than you and I would be. Mostly you. Um, no, I'm kidding. That's terrible. Jesus, on hearing this, said, do not fear, only believe. She'll be well. See, they believed that he could only heal sick people. And what sickness had gone the full length, he couldn't do anything. When he got to the house, 
He didn't let anyone go in except Peter, James, and John, as well as the father and the mother of the child. Here's what's interesting. The father and mother now, synagogue leaders, just went into their house, which now contains a dead body, with a guy who's just been touched by a woman with an issue of blood. I don't think uncleanness is their priority right now. Because as soon as you go into that house, you're unclean because it's got a dead body in it. And Jesus leads them into this house. Inside, everybody's weeping and mourning and crying. He said, don't cry, she's sleeping. And everybody laughs at, her, laughs at him. Here's what Jesus is communicating. Me waking up a dead person is as simple as waking up a sleeping person. That's how easy it is for me. Now, I can wake up, I can bring a dead person to life as easy as it is for you to wake up a sleeping person. Now, some of you have teenagers, and you say, that's kind of hard, especially if there are chores to do. It's really, really hard. But Jesus said, listen, if, you, if, if somebody were asleep and I were to shake them, just like the disciples woke me up in the boat, that's how easy it is for me to raise dead people. It's not that big a deal. But it, in fact, he just talks to her. In the English, the translation is two words, child, arise. Her spirit returned, she got up at once, and he said, give her something to eat. Why did he say to give her something to eat? Two reasons. Number one, she's hungry. Number two, to confirm she's not a ghost. Their view of things was ghosts don't eat. So the first thing he did was give her something to eat, number one, because she'd be hungry. Dying makes you hungry. Number two... To make sure everybody understood, this isn't an apparition. This isn't a figment of your imagination. This isn't a ghost. This is a real girl risen from the dead. Her parents were amazed. He told them to tell no one what had happened. Can Jesus save? Death is permanent. Jesus can heal the sick. He can't do anything about dead people. And Jesus says, really, I am that powerful. The one, one of the issues we have with our faith is we wonder if God has the ability to do what needs to be done because our minds are constrained about what his options are. The Bible teaches this. God is not constrained by the options we imagine. He is constrained by the options he has, which are innumerable. And God has the power in this passage alone to deal with the weather, to deal with demons, to deal with sick people, to deal with social and religious isolation, and to deal with dead people. That's how powerful Jesus is. Can Jesus save? What's the answer? Anyway, anyhow, he sees fit. The Bible tells us Jesus is God, and he has power to do whatever, whatever is in his will. The next part of this, we'll have to go quickly, if we're going to get done in three and a half hours. Jesus can save. Many of us who have been in church a long time, like Seth mentioned, he got saved as a young person. He's like many of us. Yeah, God can save. God saved Seth from sprinklers. I've always wondered why your backyard is never watered, though. It's, if you've been to his house, it's just brown. No, I'm kidding. I have no idea. The bigger question for those of us who've been following the Lord for a long time is, is will he? I personally, for me, maybe not for you, this one's tougher because it bothers me. Maybe it doesn't bother you, but it, I'm going to try and share my pain with you. It bothers me to know he can do something he won't. Oh, I know he can show up. I, I, I just read four miracles. I believe these aren't merely in the Bible for entertainment purposes. These are in the Bible because they happened. 
And, and knowing what he can do, the question is, in my particular circumstances, why isn't he? I know he can save, but, but will he? In 1 Kings chapter 18, it's a passage we're very, very familiar with. It's where the prophets of Baal are competing with uh, Elijah to see whose God is God. And the deal is, whoever can get their God to burn up a, a sacrifice, their God will be God. And so the prophets of Baal go first, and they set up the sacrifice. They're not allowed to light it on fire. They've got to pray to their God to get it to light. And here's what 1 Kings 18, 26 through 29, this is religious trash talking at its best. They took the bull, it was given to them, they prepared it, they called on Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice. No one answered. They limped around the altar they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. I love this guy. Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or maybe he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Oh, that's interesting. What were the disciples doing in the boat? Maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. They cried aloud and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances. It's their effort to show their God they're suffering and they're in need and maybe he will take pity on them. Blood was gushing out and at midday it passed and they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And many of you are going, I know what that's like. I know Jesus can save. I know God can save. I've been crying out for years. Will he save? The Bible is very, very clear. Jesus has plenty of power to do what he wants. The question is, will he? When Jesus is with his disciples in that boat, Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are stunned at his disregard. What the the disciples fail to understand is Jesus can do more asleep than they can do awake. Yes, Jesus will save them. Will Jesus save them on their terms, according to their timetable, according to their agenda, according to their desires and their whims? No. If Jesus did that, then the disciples are God, and he's the servant. Jesus saves according to his purposes and plan, because he is God. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, where is your faith? Two things he wanted them to know. Number one, I'm still in control while sleeping. The God of the prophets of Baal, when he's asleep, he can't do anything. Jesus asleep can do anything. Secondly, thing he wanted the disciples to understand, and we're going to learn this over the course of the book of Luke, why didn't you guys command the waves and the wind? You're made in my image. You're my disciples. Disciples are supposed to imitate the rabbi that they are following. The question Jesus would have for them, number one, why don't you trust me to be able to keep you safe while sleeping? Number two, why didn't you rebuke the wind and the waves? Because that's exactly what he wanted them to do. The town of the demoniac, they see the powerful work of Christ to save the demoniac from a legion of demons. And this is what they say to him in verse 37. All the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart, for they were seized with great fear. Jesus is too dangerous. 
If Jesus is more powerful than a legion of demons, they are more afraid of him than they were of the demons. Someone this powerful can't be trusted. Sometimes this is what happens to us as well. The problem with God is he has too much power and he's unaccountable. Nobody's making sure he's being good. And that's what the people of the Gerasenes were thinking, that Jesus was going to be in cavalier and as reckless as a legion of demons, and he's more powerful than them, and he can't be trusted. It's not that he's not powerful. They know he's powerful. The problem is, is he, is he good? Is he going to look out for us? Is he going to watch out for us? And they, they're convinced he won't. It would be better if he left. Would Jesus save? The woman who had the issue of blood, she believed Jesus could save powerfully, but she didn't believe that Jesus had the ability to take somebody who was an outsider in their religious system and bring her in and make her clean. We limit God and what he can do in our lives. Jesus certainly can't wash away the shame of my most significant sins. He can certainly deal with the stuff of my life that I'd be willing to share when giving my testimony. But the stuff of the deep darkness, the deep secrets, the deep history that I don't want anybody to know about, Jesus can't handle that. Jesus can't help me because I'm good enough. I don't measure up. I don't don't matter. And Jesus here won't move another inch until he's able to interact with this woman and help her understand, I am good and I am powerful and I will save you from all the shame that you have. Finally, Jesus and this family who lost their daughter who is 12 years old. I can't imagine that. For those who have been through that, this is heartrending to a degree we can't describe. And here's the problem with Jesus. Powerful, kind, good, late. I have problems. My problems have deadlines. Problem with Jesus, he can't be bothered to handle the stuff of my life when it needs to be handled. And guess what? I've sort of filled him in on the details, and he fails to keep the schedule. I've sent the Outlook invitation. Does Jesus save even when his timetable is different than ours? I might suggest Jesus always saves in a timetable that is different than ours. That's hard for us to take because we want to be God. But at the end of the day, he is God. And the question we have, why do these things trouble our faith so much? Why is it so hard for us to get our head around the notion that Jesus will save? And the reason is this. Many times it's hard for us to be convinced that he really is that good and kind. Because when he's not doing things according to our preconceived notions and timetable, he must be, there's really only two options in our mind. Either I'm not worth helping or he is mean. Those are the two options our mind creates for us when Jesus doesn't show up when and how we want. Those are two lies from the devil. What Jesus is trying to convince us is, number one, the worst thing he could do is follow our timetable instead of his. Because his timetable, his plan, and his purpose is the absolute best thing that can happen to us. And sometimes that means he's not going to show up precisely when we want him to. Or he's going to handle the challenges of our life in a very different way than we would anticipate. Jesus does save. Jesus does help. And he will help. But oftentimes, his timetable is different than ours. Troubled faith. Can Jesus save? The Bible tells us he can. 
will Jesus save? The Bible tells us he does. How do we know that? How do we know Jesus always saves? Because the grave is empty. Jesus goes all the way to the cross and dies for sinners who wonder if he's good. Isn't it great he didn't only die for people who appreciated it? What if he only died for people who really appreciated it? Who would he die for? Nobody, because we don't, we don't really get it. Gee, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember what Jesus said about the guy he was healing from being unable to walk. Which is, it, which is easier to do, to tell this man to get up and walk or to forgive a man of his sins? Which is easier? Well, in our minds, it's easier to forgive somebody from your sins because that's unverifiable. He said, so that you may know I forgive sins, take up your mat and walk out the room. How do we know Jesus saved? Because he dies for sinners. Because he takes the initiative, like that guy who had a thousand demons, and he seeks us out and says, I died for you to bring you forgiveness of sins. I came out the grave, so one day you will come out of yours. Can Jesus save? Yes. Will he save? Yes. He saves sinners by going to the cross, raising from the dead, and anyone who puts their faith in him receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Once you have Jesus, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is you would die. And it's not that big a deal. Other things, for those of us who have a little bit further to go on our journey, which hopefully is most of us, Jesus does have the power to help. Jesus is not weak. Here's some things just from the Bible. I'm not saying you will... uh, understand this or believe it all the time, but here's some things that are clear from the Bible. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not distracted. Jesus is not busy. Jesus is not broke. Jesus doesn't have other things that are more interesting to him than you. Jesus isn't casually disinterested in the minor affairs of your life. All of these things are untrue. How do we know that's untrue? Because Jesus died for sinners. He demonstrated his love for us. He made clear his devotion to us by taking the initiative to die for sinners. Impossible is nothing to Jesus, and improbable is child's play. Everything in your life that's impossible, Jesus goes, I call that Mondays. And anything that's improbable, he does while sleeping. He's that powerful. Jesus is God. He has always been God, and he always will be God. There is not a single thing in your life that he doesn't have an answer for and intend to bring an answer for. The hard part is when his answer is different than ours. So that's the final thing I want to remind you of. Jesus is good and kind. God is good and he is kind. If the enemy cannot convince us that Jesus is a wimp, which he tries to do all the time, but if he is unable to convince you that Jesus is a wimp, and you continue to be convinced from your Bible that Jesus is powerful, then what the enemy will try to convince you is that he is mean. If he can't convince you that Jesus is powerless, the enemy will try to convince you that he is not good. And you read through your scripture over and over and over again, God is good and kind, compassionate and merciful, showing patience, not to just one generation or a few generations, but to a thousand generations. Jesus has heard 
every single one of your prayers. Every single one, he has heard it. I would even say biblically, Jesus knows the difficulty of your prayers more than you do. He understands the challenges we face. He hears and he, re, and he responds. Is he trustworthy? Can we rest in him and say the manner in which he responds is the best way for him to respond? That's hard to do. But when we do that, we go away like that woman with peace because he hears us and he makes us whole. Can Jesus save? Yes. Will Jesus save? Without a question. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And God, we just want to take a moment in in the time we have here this morning to really to repent, to confess the hardness of our hearts, that oftentimes we doubt your power, and when we don't doubt your power, we doubt your willingness. And God, that doesn't come from you, that doesn't come from your word, that comes from the rebellion in our heart and the deceptions of the enemy. Father, I'm asking in this moment that you would take our our hearts of stone, our hearts of not wanting to trust you, and you would soften our hearts. That we would recognize how powerful you are and how good you are. That when you answer according to the, the desires of our heart, that we would give you praise and not take the credit ourselves. And when you decide to answer in a way that's different than we want, would you give us humble submission to the glory of your wisdom? Would you give us a willingness to recognize that rebellion in our heart which wants your job? God, we know you are good because you went to a cross for sinners like us. And we know you are powerful because the grave could not hold you. And we know you are generous because you said one day we will go to a home which you have been preparing for us. God, we would ask in these moments of this life where our life is marked with trial and and difficulty that you would give us faith to believe, to trust you are powerful and trust you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand up with us as we close with a song.